0: Uh, just before we get on to talking about Easter properly, I want to start with something totally unrelated. Uh, year before last, uh, U2 came out and uh, did their 360 degree concert in Auckland. Did anybody go to that concert? Yes, yep, I'm just telling this to make the rest of you jealous. It was a great concert, it wasn't a good concert, because it was the 360 degree tour. And so, you know, the, the audience was all around the stage, 360 degrees. The stage looked like this massive rocket ship formation, and there was a big wraparound screen at the top that had various images, Uh, on it throughout the concert. The theme of that concert was a question, Uh, and the question was this, what time is it in the world? And they never addressed it directly, I don't think Bono ever talked directly to that question, Uh, there was no song that was directly sung to it but it just kind of hung there and it came up on screen a few times during the night, What, what time is it in the world? And I think what they were were getting at there is not what time is it in New York and London and Paris, but what, what is the nature of this moment that we're living in? What marks this time in this generation at this point in the world that we are in? And it was a great question. It was like a transcendent question that kind of lifted us all above just the ordinariness of life and focused us on this big, deep, probing question for that concert. And I think Easter is a time to ask questions like that. I think Easter is a good time to ask that kind of question. What time is it in the world? Because it's really easy for Easter and Easter services to become a time when people have a private little religious ceremony and a bunch of religious people come together and they celebrate this event of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection that just is, is far away from the mainstream of public life and really has nothing to say to the real issues of the real world that real people face in their everyday lives. But I think Easter is a time to ask big questions. Questions about life and questions about death and faith and God and what time is it in the world? So I don't know how you'd answer that question. What time is it in the world? What is the nature of this time that we're living in? What is the nature of this moment? I think for me as I reflect on that question, this time right now is a time of real uncertainty and real anxiety for a lot of people around the world, especially economic uncertainty. Especially financial uncertainty. Uh, we're four years on now from the global financial crisis or four years into the global financial crisis, however you look at it. The GFC, got an, a little acronym for it now, the GFC, just like KFC, <laughs> just costs a bit more. <laughs> and a lot of people are doing it tough, right? I mean, at a ground level, people uh, in business, it is very, very hard for household budgets, it's very, very hard. People are feeling it. People are finding it really hard going. Some people are feeling it far more now than they were in 2008 and 2009. It's like they're feeling the after effects of the whole recession. And people are realizing that this is now the new normal. These tough economic conditions, this is the way it is. And people are having to adjust and make huge changes, huge lifestyle changes to try and cope with the conditions that we find ourselves in. And now what you see happening, maybe in the last six months or so, are people starting to ask bigger questions? Bigger questions about the whole economic system of which we are a part, the whole system of capitalism that drives Western nations. There was an article in Time magazine earlier in the year which said this, as jobs remain scarce and the welfare of middle class American and European families has come under strain, capitalism as it functions today seems to have failed to do what it is supposed to do, provide economic opportunity and a better future for all. Now, I'm not an anti-capitalist, let me say that up front, this is not going to be a big socialist rant, but I think this is indicative of a bigger issue. I think this is indicative of the fact that our story is starting to come unstuck in the West. That our story, that our cultural story, our cultural narrative is starting to get shaky because for the past several hundred years in Western countries, and increasingly for some non-Western countries, we have lived by a particular story, by a particular narrative. And you could call it the story of progress. The Western narrative of progress. And it basically says this, that through our enterprise and through our activity and through our initiative and our effort, we will lead to an inevitable increase in the quality of life. We will inevitably produce betterment of human society and life for everyone. And this has been around since the Industrial Revolution, since the Age of Enlightenment. But the 20th century version of this story had a particular flavor to it. It had three pillars to it. It had the pillar of science and technology. We believed that through increased advances in science and technology and research and development, we would eventually lead to an exponential increase in the physical quality of life for people. Second pillar was globalization. We believed that through increased globalization, through trade and commerce and communication systems, this would increase social cohesion. And the third was the free market. That through a relatively free market economy, we would see a huge increase in economic growth and prosperity for all. Three pillars of the modern story of progress. And what has systematically happened over the past century is that each of these pillars has begun to get shaky. After the Second World War and the horror of Nazi Germany, we questioned whether science and technology were going to be our saviour, whether technology would always be put to good ends when we saw the brutal efficiencies of places like Auschwitz. And fast forward to 9-11, And after the horrors of the World Trade Center attacks, we questioned whether globalization is leading to enhanced social cohesion or maybe whether it's just entrenching old divisions between cultural groups and religious groups. And now, around the turn of the first decade of the 21st century, With the global financial crisis, the third pillar is starting to get shaky, the free market economy. And we're wondering whether capitalism is producing all that it was intended to produce. And the point is not the rightness or wrongness of capitalism or what might need to be done to fix it. The point is it's indicative that our cultural story in the West is starting to get shaky. Each of these pillars is getting cracks in them. And whether or not people are aware of that big picture, this is what is underlying the cultural anxiety people are feeling. Because when our story is under attack. We lose our moorings. We don't know who we are. We don't have any fixed reference points for meaning and for perspective and for understanding what life is. We have been driven in the West by this inevitable story of progress, and now it's starting to look hollow. And I would argue that what we need is a new story. That what we need is not to keep thrashing the old cultural story of progress and dress it up in, in some new garment. We need a different story. And that's exactly what Easter provides. It's exactly what the death and resurrection of Jesus are about. They are not a private little religious event, a little religious gathering for religious people off on the side of society. This is public truth. These events are the central events in an entire narrative that makes sense of life and structures reality for us. A better story, a bigger story, a more robust and truer story than the Western story of progress could ever be. And this story of the cross, of Jesus' death and resurrection, it begins by affirming that life has a higher value and a higher purpose than we often attribute to it. See, the system of capitalism tells us that the highest goal, the highest good, are individual interests and ends and goals. And socialism tells us that the highest good are the collective good of the state. But in contrast to both of those approaches, let me read you a quote from Pope John Paul II, the, the quote before Benedict, who's, uh, the Pope before Benedict, who's currently uh, the Pope. Pope John Paul II said this in his centennial address in 1992 people lose sight of the fact that life in society has neither the market nor the state as its final purpose since life itself has a unique value which the state and the market must serve man remains above all a being who seeks the truth and strives to live in that truth deepening his understanding of it through a dialogue which involves past and future generations and that truth the Pope is talking about there is the purpose for which human life was created. And that is relationship in the context of God as our defining reality. God created us. He created you for relationship with himself. God created you to know him. He created you to center your life around him. It doesn't mean he created you for an endless church service. It doesn't mean he created you just to sit on a mountain all day and meditate, but he created you for relationship with himself. God created human life to flourish and to thrive in every single direction. He created us for political relationships. He created us for social relationships. He created us for economic relationships. He wanted life to thrive, to flourish in all of these directions. But in the center of it, God created us for relationship with himself. That we would have this network, this matrix of relationships, all orbiting around the central Presence, the defining reality of the God who made us, the God who loves us, and the God who sustains us. That life that God created, that purpose for which He created the world, that state of affairs is best described in one word, the word shalom. And it simply means peace in every direction. Peace with God, peace with self, my mental and emotional well-being, peace with others, And peace with the world. This is God's intention. This is the world that God created. And he set us free as human beings with all kinds of potential. Athletic, scientific, uh, economic potential. To explore, to create in the context of this life-giving relationship with himself. And so if that is the purpose for which life was created, if that is the highest good, if that is where the story starts, then you look at the world today and ask, what has happened? What has gone so badly wrong? Because that world, that state of affairs, that shalom, it seems like paradise lost. It seems like an absolute pipe dream compared to the brokenness that we see, the greed that we see, the devastation, the abuse, the oppression that we see is such a far cry from this picture of shalom that God has offered to us, that God has created us for. I think what's wrong with the world can be illustrated really well by the most recent series of Survivor. Anybody see this? Survivor South Pacific. I didn't see the whole series. I saw quite a few episodes. It seemed to have the most Christian flavor of any series of Survivor that's ever been, mainly because there were these two guys on it that were professing Christians. One was a really conservative, staunch Christian called Brandon. Brandon. And the other was a guy nicknamed Coach. And he was kind of this airy-fairy, new-agey, spiritualist kind of Christian. And both of these guys were really explicit with the whole Christian language, Christian talk, Christian faith thing. They talked about playing the game for God, not for the million dollars. Yeah, right. They talked about, you know, doing this for, for God and, and, and that He was their highest priority. They would lead the team in prayer meetings. When they won, they would come back and they would have an instant prayer, celebrating, giving thanks to God. And, and this was all, you know edited into what actually played on screen. But as the game went on, you start to see these guys do things and make decisions that subtly undermine this Christian faith they're professing. Brandon talks about playing the game for Jesus and that he's playing it for God and then he launches this vicious attack on another contestant and reduces her to tears. And Coach talks about giving his word as a Christian man to another contestant that he's going to take him to the final four and then he proceeds to vote the guy off at the next possible opportunity and there's this beautiful little interaction at one point between coach and brandon between the two christians and coach has basically got all the power and the leverage and now has to decide who he's going to vote off or he's going to influence the rest of the team to vote off and really what he wants to do is vote brandon off But he doesn't want to offend Brandon because he needs Brandon's vote on the jury at the end to win the million dollars. So what he says to Brandon is, I'm going to see what God's will is. I'm going to ask God what he wants me to do. So he goes away on the beach by himself, has this little prayer time, and he comes back. And guess who God has told him to vote off? Brandon. Now Brandon's got a problem. Because Brandon's a Christian... And Brandon doesn't want to be voted off, but Brandon also knows that if Coach has played the God card and asked God what, what, what he should do and God's told him to vote Brandon off, well, Brandon's kind of got to go with that, right? Because he's a Christian guy. He can't really object. Once you play the God card, it sort of trumps everything. So Brandon's like, okay, if that's what God's told you to do. And so Coach does it. And this whole, you get the feeling through the series that God is just being used as a convenience for these guys to win the game. Now I know that it's, it is a game, I get that, you want to win the million dollars, people do what they've got to do. But I wonder whether in some ways that, that series is a parable on our lives, that, that God has become for us a convenience a lot of the time, that our real goal, just like on Survivor, is to outwit, outlast, outplay one another and get where we want to get, pursue a certain lifestyle, certain ambitions, certain financial security, certain family, whatever, certain job. And if we can use God along the way, to the degree that God is helpful in achieving those goals, I'll keep him around. See, I don't think there's many people today, I could be wrong, I don't think there's many people who are hardened atheists of the Richard Dawkins variety, who absolutely exclude the possibility of God. I think there's far more people who are quite happy to acknowledge there may be a God, it's just that He seems to have no relevance to their lives, until they hit troubled waters, until they hit a crisis point. And then God better show up. Then God had better come through and answer some prayers and help me out of this situation or else I'm never going to talk to Him again, even though I haven't really been talking to Him much up to this point at all. We pull out the God card when we need it. We tell God to go and stay in His little box over there when we don't want... We just just put God in a box and recreate Him in our own image. And what this has done is absolutely devastate our relationship with God. It's a complete perversion of the way God intended our relationship with Him to operate, where He would be the defining and central reality in our life, this life-giving relationship. Instead, we have put ourselves in the center and told God to orbit around us, thanks very much, pull Him in, push Him away at our convenience. And all we've done in the process is alienated ourselves from Him. This is what the Bible calls sin. Sin. And I know that's a loaded word these days, and I know there may be all kinds of baggage attached to that for you, but sin at its heart, it's not about breaking commands, it's not about breaking rules, it's not about violating some moral law, it is a rupturing of your relationship with God. It is the breakdown in your relationship with God because of your own selfishness, because of my own selfishness, because of our insistence to play God practically, even while we might confess God religiously, that has severed the connection between us and God and left us far from Him, on our own, and outside of His life giving presence, and that life giving relationship with Him. And then what happens is that these sinful individuals like you and me, we we form alliances, just like on Survivor. We coagulate together and we form communities. And we form countries, we form governments, we form healthcare systems, education systems. And the same virus of sin that runs through our own individual hearts infects these social structures and systems of our world as well. So ultimately, sin ripples out. And its effects become not just personal in contaminating your own individual heart, although it does that. It ripples out to affect communities. It ripples out to affect societies. It ripples out to affect entire economic systems so that it's not too much of a stretch to say that the brokenness we see in our world, the desolation, even the environmental degradation we see in our world is all a result of the sin that has separated humanity from God. That is the root cause of our problem. All of our problems, economic, financial, social, political, whatever it is, you name it, all of it comes back to the severing of humanity's relationship with the God who loves us. And so if our problem or problems are not primarily economic, political, social in nature, if they are in fact spiritual in nature then the solution to those problems, the ultimate solution, is not going to be economic. It's not going to be political. It's not going to be social. It is going to be spiritual. And this is exactly what the Easter story tells us. This is exactly what the death and resurrection of Jesus are. They are the central part of this story that God is writing that brings hope and life and a better future than the story of progress could ever offer you. Let me read you a couple of verses from the Bible. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, talks about Jesus' death and what Jesus' death has done for us. Talks about it on a couple of levels, a personal level and then a broader level. Colossians 2, verse 13, the end of verse 13, he forgave all of our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So these verses talk about Jesus' death operating in a couple of ways. In the first instance, it pictures our sin like this criminal record that we have before God. I imagine if you have a criminal record, it is an awful thing to carry around with you in life. Every time you want to get a job, it's there. Every time you apply for particular things, every time there's a need for full disclosure, your criminal record is always there. No matter how much you might try and reform your life, your criminal record is like a ball and chain around your ankle. It's how these verses describe our sin, our state, our broken relationship before God. It's this thing that we can't escape. It's this awful condition that we can't get ourselves out of. It's a relationship that we've stuffed up and we can't mend it on our own. This is the beauty, though, of what Jesus has done for us. He has expunged your criminal record. He has canceled that charge of your legal indebtedness before God that you have because of your own selfishness. Because of your own sin. And he's done it by standing in your place and absorbing upon himself, bearing on his own body, within his own being, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our wrongdoing, all of our mistakes, all of your failures, all of your fears, all of it. He has soaked it up within his own being on the cross and he's died to put an end to it all. Everything that is wrong with you, all the times you've stuffed up, screwed up, messed up, all of it, past. Present and even future, he's taken it upon himself on the cross. He's died for all of it, he's died to bring it to an end so that you could be free. And he's done more than this because as these verses go on, they talk of Jesus not only cancelling your legal indebtedness before God but also dealing with the powers and authorities, triumphing over the powers and authorities and making a public spectacle of them. And I think, when you think about these powers and authorities, I don't think we need to assume that they are these super spiritual forces floating out in the heavenly realm somewhere. I think these can be real powers and authorities in our world. The power of greed. The power of selfishness. power of injustice and oppression. Of violence. power of inequality. Power of poverty, power of consumerism, all of these powers, these are real forces and they're nebulous forces, aren't they? Can't put your finger on them, can't attribute them to one person. But this is what sin has done it has crept in like a virus. And yet, Jesus, the Bible says, has triumphed over the powers. Not only your personal sin, but also the social sin that our world is caught up in. And even the bondage that our our planet finds itself in, the cross of Christ and the death of Jesus has extended even to that. He's healed it all. He's restored it all. He's triumphed over every evil power that stands against God. Now, if that's true... If that is the comprehensive victory that Jesus won on the cross, then the obvious question that comes off the back of that is, why don't I see it? If Jesus has dealt with my sin and selfishness and wrongdoing, if He has dealt with all of the social ills of our world, then why don't we? See, why is the brokenness in the world still so present? Why is the darkness in my own heart still so present? Why do I have still such a proclivity towards selfishness? And the answer to that question takes us to the event we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus, the other great event of Easter. On that Easter Sunday morning, after the Friday Jesus died, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And as Mark pointed out rightly, He did it physically and He did it bodily. Not a spiritual, airy-fairy resurrection of the heart or some disembodied spiritual experience, but the physical, bodily resurrection of a man from the ground. Not resuscitation, resurrection. That's what happened on Easter Sunday. And it was far more than a publicity stunt. I've worked in PR. I know publicity stunts. This was not one. It would have been a good one, but that's not why God did it. He did it because when that man Jesus walked out of that tomb that Sunday morning, he did it as the beginning of God's entirely new world of Shalom, breaking into the present. He did it as a sign that a new world is here, that creation itself is being restored, that shalom is returning to God's creation, and God is healing and restoring what sin has stolen away. That's the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. And what God is saying through that act of raising Jesus from the dead is what I'm doing for this one man, I'm one day going to do for the entire creation and for all those who love me and follow this man Jesus. That's the message of Easter Sunday. It's a little microcosm of God's intention for creation. And just as that new world burst upon the scene on Easter Sunday morning, it continues as God transforms life after life after life with the good news and the power of Jesus Christ. That new world of shalom that bigger and better story that God is writing, it continues rolling forward as God resurrects men and women and children. Not physically yet, but spiritually raising us from death to new life, taking us away from an old life of darkness and selfishness and dead-end hopelessness, and raising us to new life in relationship with the God who loves us, all because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It starts with that personal transformation, that personal resurrection. It starts as people go through their own dying to the old life and rising to a new life in relationship with God. And I'd like you to hear this morning a story of that happening, a story of one life being transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I I was talking to a young woman after our service, Amanda McTaggart. She's here this morning, and she made just that decision to hand her life over to Jesus, to allow him to raise her to new life right then. And I think it would be helpful for you this morning to hear how that happened, because this really does happen. Lives really are changed. God really is still at work. And so I've asked Amanda this morning just to share a little bit of her story so that you can experience it for yourself. So Amanda, come on up. We'll get your microphone and you can uh, tell a bit of your story for us.
1: I've been asked to speak today to give you an insight on what led me to becoming a Christian and finding Jesus. There was a time for me when all that Easter meant was allowing myself the privilege to have chocolate for breakfast, lunch. I didn't get away with dinner. But since I've been coming to church, I'm beginning to uncover and understand the true meaning of what it meant that Jesus died on the cross for me, for all of us, and not the sugar-coated version of what is taught in public schools. I grew up in a home where I would be questioned or challenged if I wanted to go to church or go to Sunday school. Although to understand what these things are and to miss them, you have to understand what they are, which I did not. What led me to becoming a Christian was a conversation I had with my friend. And when the topic came up of the beginning and life after death, he had no hesitation or doubt that what he was saying was the undeniable truth. I think for anyone who isn't religious, they all share a common desire of understanding because with knowledge comes understanding and eventually hope. I too wanted these doubts and questions removed, so I started coming to church with my friends' family and now I too share that hope that all of you have in common. The progression to coming to church, to becoming a Christian, was for me a very natural one, but not necessarily easy. Earlier this year, when church had nearly ended and Reuben had finished preaching, he gave everyone the opportunity, the in prayer in the front. Now, for me, someone who only just started praying for themselves, to pray amongst people and out loud was more like a leap than a step. Questions were going back and forth in my head Do I? Don't I? when my friend said, I'm going to find my nieces, why don't you go up the front and find Jesus? Now, if this wasn't a sign, then I don't know what is. So, I decided to take that leap, made only easier with my friend Rachel, happy to support me. So I went up the front, I prayed, and I gave my life to Jesus. Reuben also told me that there was a party in heaven in celebration. Now, how is that for a comforting (laughs) thought? To my surprise, my family is very encouraging in my My choice in becoming a Christian, mainly for the reason, I think, that they can hear in my voice. They're in Australia, so they can't see it, but I'm sure they can hear how happy it makes me. Now that I'm a Christian, I feel like I'm never alone, and that I never actually have been, because God has held his hand in mine, guiding me to this point where I do not only believe, but I know.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Amanda. That's great. It's fantastic. Thanks so much, Amanda, for sharing that. It's just great to hear stories of real life transformed. Can't argue with that. That's resurrection right there, a life taken from death to new life in relationship with God. The wonderful thing about the Easter story and this big story that God is writing is it doesn't just stop at the level of individual transformation. Because as people like Amanda are transformed, as their hearts are changed by Jesus, they become renewed people in their homes and their workplaces in their neighborhoods, and it keeps rippling out. They become new people with new priorities. They become, in a sense, God's conduits of shalom to the world. God makes peace with us. He makes shalom, reconciles us to himself, and then he makes us his his agents of shalom, helping others find peace with God, demonstrating peace towards other people, living life not out of selfishness anymore, but selflessness toward others, having our character gradually transformed by the love, by the good news of Jesus. And so God's world of shalom keeps on being birthed within this existing world, not as a sideshow, not out on the margins of society, but right within the old world. There's all kinds of views as to what's going to fix the economy. And what's going to fix capitalism, and people say, well, we need more government intervention, or we need less government intervention, or we need a stronger EU, or we need to break up the Eurozone, or we need to do all of these things. And maybe some external uh, steps are needed. But what is going to solve our economic problems ultimately are renewed people who have renewed hearts with Jesus Christ and start living a different way of being human, start living resurrection lives, start living lives of shalom, of peace with others. And that's how change comes. It's exactly the same with our child abuse problem in New Zealand. There may be a need for greater agency coordination for different government policy, but what is going to stop child abuse are renewed mums and dads in their homes who, out of a relationship with Jesus, live differently because they've got different hearts. They've got changed priorities. They see their children differently. They're learning different habits of thinking and responding and acting it is that personal renewal that never just stays at the level of personal renewal. But if we let it, and if we follow it, it becomes social renewal. And it becomes God's method of bringing and breathing shalom into a broken and a hurting world. A couple of years before the global financial crisis started, in 2006, there was a group of people that met... Uh, one cold morning in front of the New York Stock Exchange. And they came from all walks of life. Some of them were homeless people, but many of them were not. Many of them worked on Wall Street and were young urban professionals. They all gathered that morning with their pockets stuffed with cash, stuffed with money. And at a particular moment on that morning, it was almost like a flash mob, all of a sudden these people gathered and they just started giving money away to anyone Anyone who wanted it, anyone who needed it, anyone who asked for it, they just started instinctively and spontaneously giving money away. Now, they were not naive enough to assume that this act was suddenly going to change the economy. It wasn't about that. It was a symbolic gesture. Standing before the the symbol, really, of financial power in our world. These people took the opportunity to symbolize and model a different way of being human that springs out of a life giving relationship with God. And the organizer of that event, a guy called Shane Claiborne, he stood up on that morning and he addressed the crowd and said, This, some of us have worked on Wall Street, some of us have slept on Wall Street. We are a community of struggle. Some of us are rich people trying to escape our loneliness. Some of us are poor folks trying to escape the cold. Some of us are addicted to drugs. Others of us are addicted to money. We are a broken people who need each other and God, for we have come to recognize the mess that we've created of our world and how deeply we suffer from that mess. Now we are working to give birth to a new society within the shell of the old. Another world is possible Another world is necessary. Another world is already here. The world he's talking about is the world of Shalom, God's new creation. It came upon the scene on Easter Sunday, and it's been bursting onto the scene ever since, as people are changed by Christ and become change agents through Jesus Christ. That's how change happens. That's how our world is gradually restored, and God promises us that the day is coming when he, will full, when he will fully complete this work of shalom, when peace in every direction will be the norm, when those who have united their lives to Jesus will have relationship with God and with self and with others and with the world that is finally and fully perfected. And that ending is far greater than the utopian dream that the story of the West The story of progress promises us that we're going to revolutionize the world through social revolution or through human effort or through human initiative. All of those dreams are hollow. All of those dreams are broken. All of those dreams will not come to fruition. The the thing that brings history, that brings this world to fruition is God's dramatic intervention through Jesus Christ in the lives of people putting this world back together and bringing justice where there is injustice and bringing peace where there is estrangement. And all of this starts, guys, at the level of personal renewal. It starts as you personally decide that you're going to step out of darkness and you're going to step into this life-giving relationship with God. It starts as you begin that relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. It begins as you come honestly before God and you own up to your own brokenness and you're big enough to accept it and to own it, and to confess it before God, and to ask Him, because of what He's done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, to forgive you for it, to set you free from it, and to draw you into the newness of forgiven and redeemed life through Jesus Christ. It begins as you go through this process of dying to your old life and rising to a new life yourself. It begins as you accept that invitation. Jesus has died. He has been risen. Now it's your move. Now the ball is in your court. God's arms are open wide and he's asking you, what are you going to do and how are you going to respond? What story are you living in? Are you still perpetuating some version of the modern story of progress? Still living a self-centered, self-governed life? It might feel great. It might feel transcendent. It might be about self-actualization and self-fulfillment and seeking some higher thing, but ultimately it's still about self. It's still about you. And God's not interested in becoming part of your little story over here. What He's inviting you today is for you to become part of His story, for you to be swept up into this incredible story that He is writing. That's the invitation in front of you. And I want to invite you, I want to encourage you To make that decision today, if you haven't yet made it. If you're not in in relationship with Jesus yet, if you've not yet handed over your life to Him, what better day to do it than Easter Sunday? What better day to do it than Resurrection Sunday? This can be your own personal Resurrection Sunday. You can look back on this day, not as the end of the journey, as the beginning of a life of being healed and transformed and renewed by the God who loves you. And look, you might have a thousand questions You might be saying, I've still got five questions here, I need answers. Join the club. Every year I'm a Christian, I've got more questions than answers. And I love it. Because it keeps the mystery in the faith. And it keeps God, God, and me, me. The day that I have no more questions, I've deceived myself in thinking I'm God. I want a faith not full of answers, but full of brilliant questions that we can spend a lifetime grappling with and wrestling with in the context of our creating relationship with God. And you might feel like, well, I need to kind of get my life a bit sorted first. I've got this relationship over here I need to deal with. I've got this addiction here. I need to probably get rid of that before I start a relationship with Jesus. If, if you are thinking that way, you, you've totally missed the point. The point is not that we clean our lives up before we come to Jesus. The point is you can't clean your life up, and that's why you need Jesus. The point is you can't do it. You'll never get there. And even if you do, what, what you just become a moral person. Big deal. You're still alienated from God. What you need is Jesus, and then he can start putting your life back together. We come to Jesus because we are messed up and broken people, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you're ready to admit it or not. We are broken people who desperately, desperately need Jesus. And friends, I'm inviting you today to take that first step back into relationship with Him, back into relationship with God. I'm going to give you an opportunity as we sing a final song this morning to make that that statement, to take a symbolic action this morning. If you're ready to step into that relationship with God, if this is your day, or maybe for you it's just this first step of beginning a conversation, maybe you're like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure yet, there's so much, I'm just still wrestling with it. You know, it begins just by starting the conversation with Jesus, just starts by following him and seeing where it goes. You might be right ready. And you're saying, yeah, you know, this is it. I've put it all. I'm sick of mucking around, running away, making my life less than what it could be. I'm ready today. I'm coming home today. I'm coming to the Father today. This is your day. I want to give you an invitation as we sing this song to get out of your seat and come forward. It's not a magic little uh, piece of carpet down here where you're suddenly going to stand here and the floor's going to light up and things are going to change. This is a symbolic gesture between you and God of you saying, I'm taking this step as a symbolic action of taking a step into the arms of God, into relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you come down the front here as we sing this song, I'd love to pray with you. You don't need to disclose the inner workings of your life. I'd just love to pray with you. And members of our prayer team are here, and they'd love to pray with you as well. And you can just take a seat in the front row, continue worshiping with us. You may want to come forward this morning just as a Christian, as an act of recommitment. To Christ, But particularly, if you don't know Jesus this morning, this is your moment. Hope is here. Life is here. Resurrection is here. Don't walk out of this place today and push that opportunity aside. Don't squash that voice. Lean into it. Lean into that relationship and not away from it. This is a day I encourage you to take this step. Physically take this step to the front. Start that relationship with Jesus this morning. Shalom is waiting for you. The peace of Christ is waiting for you.